Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Todd, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show, mate. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about Solpats, the business. We're going to talk about your journey and what you've learned over many years being in or around the business and in particular taking over. I think a lot of people look at the business and think, you know, it's like the Australian version of Berkshire Hathaway. And so when you when you bring up that and you have that moniker, I think it gives rise to a particular set of questions that wouldn't apply maybe to anything else in the country. So I'm really curious to ha- hear how you pull the business apart and how you think about what led it to enduring success and into the future. But you took over the business, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in 2015 as CEO. And I'm curious, that's that's quite a quite a time for a listed CEO, even now. Maybe not in the scheme of Soulpats, you know, being around for such a long time, but it is indeed a long time to run a business of this size. So I'm curious what you've learned in that time, something that maybe you wish you knew then that you know now. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think that the average tenure for CEOs, it, you know, maybe is only about that sort of seven to eight years. And in my case, I feel like I'm only just hitting my straps now. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's a bit like politics. You know, I think people probably serve too little time in the job to actually get things done. Now, I think about my journey and, and what I've learned along the way. And in terms of your question, what do I wish I knew then that I know now? I mean, the reality is when I came on as CEO, I'd been with the group for 12 years. Uh, at that stage, but I was still pretty young. I mean, I was 37 when I became CEO, and uh, the same month that I took on the the job, I uh, welcomed the the birth of my first child. So I know exactly how long I've been in the the job. She's about to turn eight, and so in terms of you know, I was learning to be a dad at the same time that I was learning how to be a CEO. And uh, if I think back to that that time and what I wish I knew then, you know, it's hard to pinpoint that down to one thing because. You know, that what I didn't know was colossal. You know, <laughs> eight years, it's been a real learning journey and, and I'm still learning every day, which is fantastic. But I think if I had to sort of think now about what I wish I'd done a little bit quicker, it was probably building up the team around me. I think I'd sort of taken this idea that, that, that Souls had around being you know, lean and low cost a little too literally. And, and uh, I think you can be penny wise and pound foolish. You know, we had a very, very lean team. Uh, and, and if you add good people around you, 
they pay for themselves many times over. So um, you know, we've now built out the team. And when I came on, I think the total team was probably less than 20 people. We're now about 45 people. And it's a more mature, robust organisation than what it was. But, but you know, the job for me is to make sure that we still maintain that culture around investing and you know, that stewardship of capital that we always had when we were a small team. But you know, with the broader team, it just gives you that safety net of having more eyes, but also more people to do some of the, the, the other work. You know, there's, a, there's a huge amount of regula- regulatory compliance and administration that comes from being a publicly listed company these days. That burden has increased as we've become larger. When I started, it was a sort of a, a $3 billion company. Now it's a, a $10 billion company. And, uh, and I just think the regulatory environment has changed. So we've, we've needed to take a lot more people on. Uh, and that's been really useful for us. And Milton was transformative for us. That happened about 18 months ago. We took on, they only had seven staff. We took on all of those, uh, those staff members. Getting Brendan O'Day, uh, who was the CEO of Milton, to come on as our CIO was a huge boost for the organisation. It always surprises me how few people are inside the business because, like you said, it's a $10 billion business and for you to have 45-odd people or so, that's incredible when you talk about like lean cost structures, how big the business is, and you compare that to any other business on the ASX of similar size multiples, multiples larger in terms of headcount. So I had a bit of an inside word on that, the way you tend to think about the business. You like to be really heavily involved and you like to kind of keep your finger on the pulse of all the different business units and what's going on. So we'll get to that in a second because scaling a culture is so incredibly difficult and nuanced. And I'm curious to know what you or how you think about that. But I guess the the crux of speaking with you today is I've been on this journey over the last few years, you could say, of trying to find out what makes particular businesses just incredible and enduring. Um, Someone that we had on our other podcast, which is the Australian Business Podcast, said to me that his definition of success is, does the business still exist today? And for a lot of businesses and CEOs there at the top, that a lot of them don't last nearly as long as you think they would. And yet here's Solpats. I've got the the Prezo on the side of my screen here, celebrating 120 years in the recent half-year results. That's like the, the number one slide in the deck. And clearly the business has been around for generations, and yet it still continues to perform or outperform depending on whatever benchmark an investor might set. So I'm hoping we can spend some time to pull it apart and in your eyes, get a sense of what you think has led to this enduring success. What are the elements, the factors, the systems or procedures or I guess even the culture that you try and manifest in, internally to allow that to happen. So I'm happy to go wherever you want to go on this, and I'm sure there'll be a bit of back and forth, but I'm curious how you think about that, how you break it down. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot in that, and you raise a really interesting point around survival bias, that we compare ourselves to those companies that exist today, and, and it's only the successful ones that, that exist today. And, and, and so actually, you know, quite interestingly, when you think about the funds management marketplace, the poor performing funds have obviously all gone away. So when Standard & Poor's does their active versus passive analysis to see whether active fund managers are actually doing better or worse than than ETFs, they bring back in all of those fund managers that have gone by the wayside. And um, and when you do that, it's, it's quite astonishing to see how many fund managers, active fund managers, when you take into account their fees, 
and the constraints that they have on their the way that they manage funds. The, the numbers, I mean, and it's sort of true all over the world, doesn't really matter what the product is. It's astonishing numbers. It's like more than three quarters of fund managers underperform their index. And for us to have been able to outperform the index in the way that we have for such a long period of time is, is really no small feat. And it's a huge burden on, on our team to kind of continue <laughs> that track record. I mean, over 40 years, the business has done over 15% returns, which is you know, a lot more than the market. The market's probably around 9 to 10%. And over 20 years, our, our alpha has been 3% per annum. Yeah, you know, 3% might not sound like a, a lot you know, in a year, but the, the compound effect of that is really significant. And, and so what we put in our presentation is, you know, if you were an investor in Souls 20 years ago and you get that extra 3% on top of the market every year, well, the impact is that your investment is now grown by more than nine times, whereas an investment in the market is, uh, is about five times. So it's you know, quite a pronounced effect when you have that kind of compound growth over time. But so you know, we, we really consume ourselves, I guess, with the idea, what is it that makes other fund managers uh, perform poorly or, or in line with the market or, or have a challenge in, in getting that kind of performance that we have? And, and what is it that you know, we have done in the past that we need to continue to do in the, the future? And um, you know, I think certainly an owner's mindset helps. I mean, having the founding family you know, inside the building with us every day. I mean, that door that you can see over my shoulder there is is a door to the chairman's office, which is you know fantastic to just have that connection with the past and and that, that kind of history and knowledge that's that's built up over such a long period of time. And you know, we can talk about Rob and his impact on me later. But but I think that owner's mindset has been really powerful. I think having permanent capital is one thing that people don't quite appreciate. And you know, a lot of fund managers are constrained not just by their own actions but by the you know, the environment that they're in and 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 if you take significant risk by departing from the index it, if it goes right that's great but if it doesn't go right uh, you you may be out of a job you may not have a fund i mean the, you know the, the threat of outflows from one year of underperformance is so great that it doesn't really warrant taking the risk to outperform so what you end up seeing is naturally, you know, an either a conscious or subconscious bias to um, really hugging the index, and and so we've never done that, um, and and, uh, and and in fact, a lot of people criticise us and say, well, you say that you're a diversified portfolio, and in the past, I mean, if if we go back before the Milton transaction, about seventy percent of the portfolio was in four stocks, uh, TPG, New Hope, Brickworks, and, and then API. And people said, well, how can that be diversified? And, and we did sort of some thinking around this and, and actually it all became clear to us when I read the, the Ray Dalio uh, principles book and one of his kind of important principles, what, what he calls the holy grail, is this idea around diversification is achieved by a small number of uncorrelated assets. You don't need a lot of assets. And in fact, the benefits of, of more uh, assets uh, diminishes after the first four or five. And if they are uncorrelated, you get all of the benefits of diversification uh, and, and thereafter, you know, you, all you're actually doing is adding, adding more risk into your portfolio because you've got more things to manage and, and you're diluting your, your best ideas. So that, that actually you know, has held the business in really good stead for a long time. And I don't know whether 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure going back 20, 30 years, they probably didn't have the academic research around what was uncorrelated. But instinctively, we just knew that TPG, New Hope and Brickworks performed in different ways in different parts of the cycle. And when one was not doing so well, the, thankfully the others have always managed to um, pick up the slack. So I think you know, taking that long-term approach is also really important. Uh, again, if you don't have that permanent capital, you can't take that long-term approach. You've always got that threat that someone's going to take the money away from you. And um, and so having that long-term approach enables you to make long-term decisions, not be worried about short-term fluctuations. And I think, you know, it's sort of unfashionable to say, but but one of the great things that, that Souls did all those years ago was the cross-shareholding in 1968. And what the cross-shareholding did, I mean, a lot of people focus on the fact that back then it was a takeover defence sort of ceased to be that these days. But but what it did was it, it basically gave both of those companies the comfort to not worry about short term short termism and 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 uh, you know and investors sort of saying I want a, a good half year or a good full year this year. They would they could actually make long term decisions. And I think that's been you know really fabulous for both of those companies. Like for example Brickworks, I think without the comfort of of us as a major shareholder may well have sold off all of its excess land 20 years ago and missed out on you know, what, what's been a, a fabulous run for industrial property. That's interesting. Now, I hadn't thought about your being like Souls' influence on Brickworks in that way. I've spoken to Lindsay before um, and Rob, of course, and Tom, and uh, that idea of like operating companies sitting on top of land and property value is like something that's really interesting because I know a lot of companies, and I know you guys have been through this as well, where shareholders activist shareholders will try and pull apart the business and you guys go to length to try and defend that which is really important too just to summarize some of the things that you've touched on there and i wrote them down in my hand as you were talking so that you've got obviously the owner's mindset which has always come through to me when i've spoken to anyone in the team or even just read the notes and listened to calls and so on but then you've got this idea of permanent capital you mentioned the cross shareholding is one of those things but you've also got a lot of loyal shareholders a lot of internal ownership as well and then you've got uncorrelated bets, um, which I guess feeds on that owner's mindset. Can you maybe give us an example of when you've, I guess, when you think about the owner's mindset, where maybe you've made a decision that others haven't and why you were able to make that decision? So I'm thinking of like companies or in market environments, say when commodity prices are low or unfashionable or something like that, where you think I've been able to lean on this structure as a competitive advantage? Because I agree with so much of what you said, but I'm hoping we can dig a little bit deeper into that. I think the commodity example that you bring up is a really good one. If I think about the journey of New Hope, and I mean, New Hope's been a fantastic investment for us. We, we first invested in, in New Hope three or four decades ago, and it was a growth capital into a Indonesian startup mine. Um, so it's pretty, pretty high-risk capital. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But since then, you know, we sold out of uh, Indonesia and we, we put the money uh, back into uh, Queensland coal assets. And, and we were in a fortunate position where we had a development project called New Sarajji, which we were going to develop, but we, we got paid a, a very large price at the top of the cycle and we sold that and for about $2.5 billion, which was just a huge price at the time and a huge amount of capital for, for the business that we had uh, and for the group. In fact, and at that stage, we owned sixty percent of New Hope, and and so we had a 
but that was the top of the cycle. We had a decision to make about whether we would return that capital back to shareholders or keep some of it for opportunities that might come when the cycle turns because, you know, all commodities are a cyclical game and, um, and we just felt that there was going to be a time when we could put that capital to good work. And, and so we, we distributed some of it. We, you know, we certainly gave shareholders some really um, uh, significant special dividends and, and, and people were happy. But, but you still get the odd person saying, well, you know, you've got a lazy balance sheet. Um, what are you going to do with the capital? Why don't you give it back to shareholders? Let them decide where they're going to put it. And, and frankly, you know, any other company would have, would have succumbed to that pressure. But because we own 60% of it, because we had a, a long-term view and a, and a long-term vision for, for what, we were, what we could do with that capital at the right time, we held that for, I want to say, four or five years. And, and eventually we got to the point where you know, some ESG pressures started mounting and, um, uh, and it, the environment switched to being people paying silly prices to people just could not find buyers for assets. There was there was very few people who were deploying capital into coal you know, four or five years ago, and uh, and and so one of the assets that that came up was the Bengala mine in in the Hunter Valley. We bought it in two tranches. The first one was from Rio, uh, and the second one was from from Wes Farmers. And I think both of those decisions were guided or if not led by ESG concerns to to get out of thermal coal. I think the total price that we paid for that asset. Uh, in two tranches was about $1.7 billion. The first four years or so, the coal price was a little lower uh, than it traditionally has been. And, and so it took us a little time to get paid back. But I think we got paid back our money, our investment on that first, on, on that acquisition in inside five years, probably closer to four years. So that was pretty good, you know, notwithstanding the fact that the coal price was pretty low. Uh, it then paid us back again the following year, and it will pay us back again this year. So in, I want to say, seven years, we've been paid back three times that investment. And we would only have been in a position to, to buy Bengala if we'd taken that difficult decision to sit on cash for, for a number of years while we waited for the cycle to turn. It's interesting. So you just introduced another thing that I think about when I think about souls, which is this idea of, the like you mentioned, the permanent uh, cap capital as support for your business. But that also relates to a competitive advantage over fund managers, which is the legal structure. So for in, in this instance, you were able to sell high, sit on the cash for years, uh, and then deploy at higher, much higher yields. And I think that's something that a lot of people miss as well, because we don't measure companies, and we don't tend to as an industry measure companies or investors based on four-year horizons sitting on cash, right? We tend to measure them at at most on quarterly or six monthly results, and otherwise it's monthly or even daily if you just stare at share prices. Yep. So that's you've introduced another thing there, which is quite interesting. And I guess the analogy for anyone that's a bit confused about the differences between a tr- legal trust or a managed fund and a company structure is like imagine you as an individual, you have your bank account, but anytime there was surplus cash there or anytime you make a profit on a share, you have to send that back to someone else. And that's basically, imagine that it's in your ComSec account or in your self-wealth account, whatever you're trading in, you make a profit, well, legally that has to go back to the owners. And that's the a key difference in for long-term wealth creation, in my opinion. And you were able to do that under pressure, I imagine, like under pressure of commodity prices ebbing and flowing and so many other things. 
In terms of the cross-shareholding with Brickworks, you mentioned that maybe your mindset there as like a holding company and as a business that can provide capital and support to Brickworks as a key shareholder made Brickworks, enabled Brickworks to, I guess, unlock the value of the property because, again, that long-term mindset. But how about the other way? How about the benefit to Solpats from Brickworks? As in, is it just that kind of defensible, you know, position that it puts the board in? Because I th- spent a lot of time, Todd, thinking about you can have a great CEO step through the door, say like yourself, but then if the board is under pressure from shareholders, then the board may be forced to remove or change strategy that the CEO proposes. So that that environment itself as well needs to be protected. Maybe if you have any thinking around how Brickworks has supported sales in that way. Yeah, the, the, they have absolutely supported us in equal measures. You know, we've supported them and they've supported us. That, that That's why it works. They have given us the comfort to be able to take long-term decisions without worrying about short-term performance. And they've also allowed us to sort of shield out some of the, the noise. I mean, being in the public markets has a lot of noise attached to it, you know, whether it's um, ESG is a, is a big one at the moment and governance and, you know, all, all of the things that people want businesses to do these days that are not necessarily in the interests of long-term performance. And, you know, and, and ESG is a classic one. I mean, I just mentioned an example where we had some people who were kind of in a position where they were forced to sell an asset that they probably didn't want to sell. But, you know, and I understand completely why they were in that situation, but we were in a position where we could kind of fight through that noise and uh, and with the support of Brickworks, you know, we have a large shareholding in a thermal coal company, which is not particularly fashionable, but it's very profitable. I guess there's there's another thing that kind of comes into mind here, which is this idea that, so you've got basically a company that is set up to invest in other companies or listed stocks or private businesses, mine sites, projects, even property yourself now as well. But one of the things you mentioned earlier on was the cost structure as well and the the leanness of souls. I wonder how, because this is something that we see, sorry, it's a tangent, it's something that we see with Berkshire as well with Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Their team is very small, even though they oversee hundreds of thousands of employees through their holding companies. And you mentioned that building the team out was a really important part for you. So I'm curious in terms of like a holding company itself, how do you think about cost structures and passing those costs, not necessarily passing those costs back on through, you know, cost savings, lower fees, because it's not that type of business, but how does that benefit or compound returns as well? Yeah, you're right with the parallel with, with Warren Buffett. I mean, we, you know, it wasn't by design that we, that we set up to be like that business. Um, although I suppose, you know, when you have people like Jim Milner and Rob Milner who are just sensible human beings they, they probably can't end up coming to the same kind of decisions that a, a sensible guy like warren buffett does but our view was that setting up a holding company you know we decentralize the management of the underlying operations we let management teams get on with the job we hire specialists who are experts in their field to, to run those businesses and our job is about asset allocation and so we are really just the you know if you like the apex if all of these businesses were in and under uh, our business as subsidiaries, um, you know, we would just be the apex of that organisation and we just push down the management and operations of, of those investments to, to those teams and we even set up boards for each of our investments. So, so then when I think about the resourcing at the hold co level, 
it's a pretty minuscule amount of money in the overall scheme of things. So it's not really a huge focus of ours to make sure that we're not spending too much money. I mean, we, we spend about 0.3 of a percent of the asset value in corporate costs per annum. So if you like, the management fee for managing the portfolio is 0.3 of a percent. But a big part of that is, you know, we're spending, because we're active, I mean, if we were a passive fund manager, we could do that a lot cheaper because if we were a single asset class, just doing Aussie equities, we wouldn't be spending the money that we spend on due diligence. We wouldn't be spending the money that we spend on having you know, multiple teams to look across asset classes and, and, and things like that. So I would say we're at the sort of more expensive end, but the reality is that, you know, I think you rightly point out that other businesses doing what we do would, would do it with multiples more people than what we have. So I think that, you know, we are lean and it's a partly a mindset thing because if we're lean, then we can encourage our management teams to be lean of the underlying entities. And we do really think that low cost is a really important discipline because if you think about it, 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 it's a risk mitigant. It's also a competitive advantage. If you're the lowest cost operator, you are not only going to make more money when things are, are good, but when things are bad, you know, your competitor is going to go out sideways a long time before you will. So you know, we think that low cost is, is, is a really important way to run the business. It's also a mindset. If we are watching what we spend here, then it, it more naturally flows into being a, a value investor. I mean, I think if we were just flippantly spending money without any real regard to it, then you know, that seems to me to be at odds with trying to get every last dollar out of every, of every investment that we make as well. So it's completely a mindset that it's all about how do we, every dollar that we spend is a dollar that we take away from our shareholders. So how do we, how do we get more dollars back to our shareholders? And, and that mindset is really important. But as I said, you know, when, at the outset, you can be penny wise, pound foolish. Uh, and, and the way that I think about resourcing at our group level or the Holdco level is can the extra salary that we're spending or the extra amount of money that we're spending on DD or whatever, whatever dollar we're spending, can we get a really good return on that? And, and as I said, good people will pay for themselves many, many times over. So there'll be a, a point of inflection where I think you end up getting fat and then you create too many people who end up just feeding off each other and creates administration and bureaucracy and politics and, and you start getting further away from having your finger on the pulse. And th- that is you know, a point of no return because actually what happens is those people that you, you end up hiring hire, hire other people's and, 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 and you end up with just a, uh, an organisation full of people having meetings with each other. So you need to be careful that you don't get to that point. But for now, we're adding people who are adding real value, either de-risking the business, making it more efficient, or people who are coming in and making better investment decisions. So this is a really good segue into... And we've already started at the conversation around culture and business. Whenever I talk to someone from, I'll just say like the entities, like the combined businesses, everyone seems very calm relative to a lot of other investors that I speak to who are very high energy and are very, I guess, active in the way that they communicate as well. Whereas everyone seems very relaxed. Everyone, even not just in the investment team, but people that I speak to from souls that are, you know, behind the scenes and everyone just seems it's almost like it's a family-run business, even though it's huge at scale, right? So you mentioned there, like every if you hire the wrong person, then that person could hire another person that may be wrong for the, the business, and then it creates this uh, self-fulfilling cycle. 
So I'm curious how you think about hiring and scale and all these types of things. Like what, do you have any values, like company values that you champion internally other than like owner's mindset and how you communicate that through the business? I think you just get a feel for whether people are going to be a good fit. Uh, and we do carefully think about our new hires as to as to whether they're going to, to fit in. But but yeah, when I think about fit, it, it we end up with quite a diverse group of people. And, and so it's more about do people have the you know, the right ingredients for success. You know, are they, do they have high integrity? Are they smart? Uh, will they be hardworking? But, but also are they, you know, not going to sort of come in and increase the sort of policy? Like what we want to do is, is remove any impediments between our ability, between us and our ability to make really good investment decisions. So we don't want any politics here. We don't want people who are don't feel comfortable coming into the office. It's really important that you know, there's not anxiety and division and all, all of that sort of thing. So when I talk about fitting in, it's about ensuring that people don't come here and disrupt the harmony that we have. You know, we have, I mean, you're right, it is a very calm place. People enjoy coming to work. We all get on with each other. People don't raise their voices. There's no sort of high levels of stress or anything like that. It's about making sure that people are in an environment where they can make the best possible decisions. It's interesting to think how you, you mentioned like being in the office, no anxiety is really important. Do you personally oversee all new hires at the moment? I do. And in fact, the chairman meets the majority of our new hires as well. And uh, and it's just an important kind of step for us to get a feel that, that these new people are, are going to be additive to the environment. And um, you know, we've got a great team of, of people and and. I sort of mentioned the diversity because you know, we do want people from all backgrounds and who think differently. And, and if there was one kind of common ingredient that we have, it's people who have been a self-starter and, and, and they haven't had their careers or their uh, education or, or anything sort of you know, given to them. They, you know, they, they have generally come from working class backgrounds who have achieved a lot because they're smart and hardworking and they're driven to being in this profession and you know it's not a, not a conscious thing that we went about doing but when i sort of stand back and look at the team it's amazing how how many people are from that kind of you know working class background it's this idea of i feel like it's like people have to get it but they also have to want it and so sometimes you can't always get the want it part for the right reasons like some people want these positions for the glamour or the kind of the notoriety of you know i i work on this in this office with this brand and whatever and it's kind of refreshing to hear that take of like you you kind of embodied that in your hiring process in terms of finding people to join the team do most people come to you directly like do you do you outsource any of that do you use recruiters do you look at any do you use that or do people like do you use like referral networks as in your own networks whether it's your board whether it's your team your existing team speaking to other people in the industry and you think wow that person's really impressive I'd love to know, you know, catch up with them and see what they're about and get to know them more. Like, do you, do you get what I mean? So are you kind of sourcing this or do you rely on other people to bring you these these people? It's a bit of a combination. I mean, obviously, we, we keep trying to hire younger people to, to bring them into the business. And, and that's a more difficult exercise to do through your networks because they're kind of new to the industry. And, you know, they might, I mean, we, we get quite a few uh, interns out of university. And, uh, and so we'll tend to sort of run processes for, for that or, or go through recruiters um, to identify those sorts of people. But the senior hires, more often than not, we're 
you know, relying on our networks or people that we've met along the way to, to fill positions. And sometimes we do use uh, uh, recruiters, but, but, you know, we're not talking big numbers. As I said, we've added 20 people in the last sort of five or six years. So, um, and the turnover is extremely low. It's quite, quite phenomenal, actually, just how, and I think, you know, that, that sort of the, tells me that we've got something right about the culture and, and, and what we're doing here. Like if I think about the, the, you know, the senior team, uh, well, I, I joined 19 years ago. And when I joined Brent Smith, who heads up our strategic investment portfolio, he was already here. David Scammell, who heads up Pit Capital Partners and, and our private equity portfolio, he, he joined, I think, about one or two weeks after me. Dean Price, who runs our emerging companies and structured yield portfolio, he, he's been with us for about 15 years. So um, it's you know, extraordinary longevity, and it's actually been a feature of Souls for a really long time. They used to have medals for people who would work for the, the firm for certain amounts of time, and there were people who were in the 50-year 50, the 50 club. So it's been, I guess, a feature of the organisation for 120 years that you, know, you become part of the family, you enjoy the work, you, you enjoy the culture, and, and people stay a long time. I've got one more question that just on the team and the hiring process, because this fascinates me because I think the further you move from the core team, um, I guess the the less impact I would say that person can have because the bigger the wheel becomes and the more cogs you have, if that makes sense. And so getting those initial few, even if it's 45 or 100 in your instance, is so important. Has someone ever got through the hiring process, got to you, and then you've presented them to Rob and Rob said no? I don't think so. I mean, we've, we've certainly, I mean, sometimes for, for important uh, hires, we, we get down to a short list and Rob meets a number of people and then he obviously expresses a view about who he thinks would, uh, would work. But, you know, Rob, you know, he, he's amazing how, how trusting he is of the team now and, and, and always has been a great supporter of whatever view that we have. And particularly if it relates to an investment, he, he will back us and he'll, you know, he might say, well, here's one thing you need to think about or um, have you thought about this? Or are you sure about about this? You know, given X, Y, Z, and um, but but he has very very rarely said no to something that we recommended. And I wouldn't expect him to have said no too many times, to be <laughs> honest. Um, but I was just curious because obviously you're looking for someone that comes into the business because one person that can come in and be, I guess, a, a negative on the business can have a profound impact on the existing business. So. It's important that the key stakeholders are involved in that and have a view on that. I'd like to turn now to a bit about like the investment process. And obviously, you, you introduced a few different kind of parts of the business, different portfolios. There's the property business, there's the listed equities, there's private companies. So can you give us, first of all, maybe if you can give us the bird's eye view of the different parts of the business and what you're trying to do in those, but then also how an idea goes from an idea to a portfolio position. Like maybe what the investment committee does, how you find ideas, like all of that. Like take your time there, and I'll follow up if I think we should double click on something. Sure, sure. So as you pointed out, you know the business now comprises a number of different portfolios, and you know whilst we used to be known as really a, a holding company of a few very significant businesses, it's now a lot more diverse and. And when I talk about diversity, as I referred to before, about sort of this idea about not diluting your best bets and also having a portfolio of high conviction ideas, we don't think about diversity being spread across the market because you're just going to perform in line with the market by doing that. We think about diversity as being adding 
different asset classes that are truly additive. And so we were conscious that whilst we had uncorrelated assets in TPG New Hope and Brickworks that were not performing in the same way as each other all the time, they were still ultimately Aussie equities and exposed to the Australian equity cycle. So we set about getting more diversification by getting into uncorrelated asset classes. And, and so um, private equity is, is one example of that. Uh, we've built up a structured yield portfolio, which is essentially credit uh, products that, that we've built up over the last 12 or 18 months. And we also have direct property, although we've been winding back the exposure to property in recent times just because the, the scale of Brickworks underlying property investments has grown materially over the last few years. And, uh, and so right now, the Brickworks uh, industrial portfolio is, is about two to $2.5 billion. And, uh, and we own 45% of Brickworks. So the look-through exposure that we have to property is, is about a billion dollars. So we've sort of said, okay, we should sort of cut back some of the direct investing that we were doing in, in property. But we're still you know, do it, doing little bits and pieces. And most of those, um, you know, we've got uh, a guy, Mike Herc, is here that's working with us that goes out and finds, you know, little opportunities and he's been doing a phenomenal job. But, but as I said, the, you know, the exposure there is, is now only about $100 million directly. So each portfolio operates a little bit differently. And the, the way that we find deals is a, is a little different as well. I mean, if you're talking about the, you know, the Australian equities uh, business, which um, has about you know, nearly three billion of Australian equities, that operates in a very typical manner as to how they select uh, equities to, to go into the portfolio, and most of that is just sort of research and, and attending company briefings. But where we are differentiated is not necessarily on the way that they find the investments, but how they construct the portfolio is different. So we, you know, we um, encourage uh, them to be a little bit more concentrated and not worry about the index, but also to take into account the broader portfolio. So, for example, if I think about the large caps last year, it was sort of underweight energy stocks, and that's because we had this you know, whopping great investment in, in New Hope in another part of the portfolio. So we manage the portfolio in totality, even though we break it up into different portfolios that you know, kind of do their own thing. And then you've got the private equity portfolio. And, and actually, if I think about private equity, you know, the history of our business has been in private equity. We, you know, New Hope was a private business that we funded uh, through growth capital. TPG was a, a distressed television station in Newcastle that we bought back in the day. And over time, that evolved to become a, a telco business. And, uh, and so we built up these you know, fabulous in, private equity investments that we then put into the public markets and, and, and then we focused basically the first 10 years of my career, my focus was on enhancing the value of TPG and New Hope. And with TPG, which was then SP Telemedia, we merged it with TPG. I think the market value of our stake then was probably about $100 million. Then the total company was valued at about $250 million. And today that's a $9 billion company and, and, and our shares um, are worth about a billion dollars. And you know, TPG merged with SP Telemedia, went on to buy AAPT, IINet, Pipe Networks, all of those sorts. But one of the things that we didn't do in that period was regenerate the private equity portfolio. And so we were quite under allocated to private equity. And what we should have been doing was building out 
the next TPG and the, the next new hope. And so, you know, we're now doing that and, uh, and we're up to about $800 million in our private equity portfolio. And, uh, and I think that, you know, we'll see that grow by a couple of billion dollars over the next few years. And if I think about how we attract deals in the private equity space, it's a little bit Buffett-like. We, we sort of say, you bring the deals to us. We are differentiated. We're, you know, we're not competing with the, the leverage buyout private equity funds that are out there trying to buy 100% of companies and, and they're usually out there sort of trying to generate their proprietary um, ideas. What we're saying is we're partnership capital we, and, and there's, there's very few sources of capital for people who are, you know, let's say you're a founder of a business and you've got a succession problem or you've got a really great business that's growing and you need capital to get to the next level or you want to buy a weaker competitor or something like that, where do you find the capital for those opportunities to grow from people who are not going to come in and tell you how to run the business? They're not going to tell you that you need to you know, get a complete exit for them in five years. We're not going to put a whole lot of leverage into it and, and, and increase the risk into the business. We're going to come on the journey with you and support you with capital. And there's very few people who are in that boat. So we're actually in the fortunate position where once we get that message communicated to the market, people come to us. So most of the deals in private equity are, are, are inbound. Then you've got the structured yield portfolio, which actually has been phenomenal success. Dean, Dean Price kind of created that 12, 18 months ago, another area where we could see that that was giving us great risk-adjusted returns compared to the equity markets, particularly when equity markets became more fully priced. And from a standing start, you know, we're on a journey now where I think we'll get through a billion dollars in pretty short time frame, like uh, in, within a couple of months, I think we'll be through a billion dollars. And Dean's really just hustled and established himself in the market by saying that we're out there. So some people come to us with debt deals. Sometimes people come to us with an equity deal and we restructure it as a debt deal because that sort of works for both parties. And uh, and, and Dean's just done a phenomenal job of, of establishing himself and, and creating those relationships and, and those opportunities are, are coming to us. And fortunately, we're in a, again in a position where there's few competitors for those types of deals that we're doing. So, you know, it, it really does come from a lot of places, but we re- rely heavily on our relationships and you know, particularly from the uh, advised network of you know, lawyers, investment bankers, accountants who come to us because they trust us. We've got a good reputation for being good partners with, with people. We've got the capital available. We can be very flexible about how we deploy it. Uh, and, you know, I just don't think there's very many people competing with, with us in what we do in a lot of the areas that we, we're in. So hearing you talk about it now, it's almost as if the listed equities create like a ballast for the rest of the business in that like your strategic investments, New Hope, TPG, et cetera, um, they've grown to be so big as a proportion of the overall portfolio. And you said like you're reinvesting in those types of opportunities now through like private equity and what have you. Because a lot of people might say, so they might say, well, you've got the holding structure, so why don't you spend more of that capital in places where other funds and other managers can't go? So why not take the listed product, listed companies, that capital, and deploy that in private markets where you probably get a better yield, but you can handle the illiquidity because you have maybe not an infinite time horizon, but you've got a very long time horizon. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, we've got about three billion of ten billion in in listed equities, and so I guess you could say that it is pretty difficult for a 
a fund of that size to consistently outperform the market. Uh, although I think that you know we are in a position to probably do that better than anybody else in the sense that we don't have those constraints that that I talked about earlier. And you know, the fact that we've got the permanent capital, the fact that we can be more concentrated, uh, and we can be more high conviction. So we we do have a, a real opportunity to outperform. There. And I think we can also dial it up and dial it down depending on the market. So if the, the market is hot, we can deploy more to other asset classes. But there might be a time when you know, the Australian market looks really attractively priced and we can pile back into equities. And it's just a really easy, easy way to deploy capital because the liquidity is there and we don't have to go and find the deal and do the due diligence and all of those sorts of things. So it is a it is an easier way for us to invest excess capital because it's always available every every day. There's a, a share trading on the market, and secondly, it does give us that liquidity to manage money whilst we're waiting for other opportunities. And uh, and so, I mean, at the moment we're sitting on quite a lot of cash, but that's sort of unusual for us. Generally speaking, we we do think that we can manage our equities um, or manage our liquidity through our equities. And our view is that. We are benchmarking ourselves, and I, I, when I say benchmark, we we don't really operate against a benchmark in the way that we invest. But but the way that we see it is that our shareholders, if they weren't invested in us, they didn't be invested in the market. And so, so we you know if if, if our equities are in performing in line with the market, then shareholders are no worse off. Whilst we wait for the better opportunities to to really generate the alpha. When an idea, whether it's private, a private company where you do more DD or if it's listed where you've probably got that ongoing research element, when an idea comes through, do portfolio managers, I'm not sure what you call them, but portfolio managers, do they have the ability to deploy capital Does like almost there and then or do you have to go through an investment committee to then make that allocation? And what I've got in the back of my mind is the company in Canada called Constellation Software, where Mark Leonard, who's built that business through acquisitions of software companies, has got to a point where there are certain thresholds that different business unit leaders can make d- decisions to deploy capital up to, but it gets to a certain point, then there becomes some sort of top-down oversight of how much can be deployed in an opportunity and to what part of the market, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I think our evolution is is not that different to Constellation. I mean, I think uh, from memory i think they did a couple of hundred transactions last year and uh and you just can't you can't do that level of activity through a committee and and that, that's been a similar um evolution in our business we used to be much smaller and the, the deal activity was much smaller so almost all of it went through the board or you know the investment committee and the board were kind of one and the same and that was fine except that as you become more active, you know it's just not possible to take that level of, of activity to the board. They meet you know, relatively infrequently, you know, once a month. And I think what it does is is not only from a practical point of view is it harder for an investment committee like that to to to, to make a large number of decisions. I think the other problem that you have is is the, the agency problem where the people who should be making the decisions are pushing it up the line to a committee and sort of washing their hands of it and saying, well, it's a committee decision. What we've done now is said, we're going to empower the individuals. We feel confident in the people that we've got and we're now empowering them to make the decisions with oversight. Um, 
and obviously there's an escalation. So you get delegated authority up to a certain level depending on the nature of the investment. So if it's listed, it's you know, quite a high level of uh, delegation because you know, we can always get out of it if, if we don't like it. But you know, private equity has a, a, a the deal frequency in private equity is a lot lower. Uh, and, and so therefore you know, we can take those things to the board a little bit more. But, but really, you know, what we're saying to our portfolio managers is, uh, we're going to empower you to, to make the decisions and, and people like me and Brendan O'Day and, and Rob Milner just in a, in a less formal way engage actively with all of the prime, uh, the portfolio managers every day to see what they're working on, talk about the deals that they're thinking about doing and just get across the detail. And through that process, you know, you're getting a feel for everything that's going on. I mean, there wouldn't be an investment that we do that I'm not across, but it doesn't go to that formal committee level. It's all about empowering the individual to be responsible for their own decisions. So this is a bit unrelated to what we're just talking about, but you obviously serve a few different masters because you're a listed company CEO yourself. You've obviously, you've got your team to run. So a lot of people don't think this, but I think managers serve their team, not the other way around. And you've got like the board of directors, obviously above you, but then you've got investors and the ASA, Australian Shareholders Association, who put this conversation together today. I know they have quite a presence on the, the register as well, but you've got this outside influence that you need to think about and you need to kind of explain the narrative and what goes in just like this, right? We're having this dialogue and it goes to thousands of investors, right? If I'm an outside investor looking at the way you invest for the future, how should I be thinking about that? Because a lot of our community at RAS think of the Soulpath as kind of like a bottom draw, let the people with the track record go and do it. But from a, if you're, a, I'm imagining if you're a profess, professional analyst and you have to write a research report on Soulpaths, you basically, it, it feels like a big element is distrust. Like we trust that they're going to make the right decisions. If you get what I mean. So how would you think about it? if you were looking from the outside and thinking this investment process and their, their vision for the future, how would how would you like them to think about it? Well, I think the only way people can really think about it is um, you know, tr- trust is saying you, you've got no reason to believe me, but put your faith in me that, that, I'll, that I'll deliver something to you in the future. We're not saying trust us. We're saying look at our track record. And we've done it for a really long time now where we've just invested in a, a very disciplined way that not only delivers uh, increasing uh, capital growth, but also increasing dividends. And why would it change in the future unless there was some fundamental shift in the people or the culture? And so I guess my job is to make sure that we don't change the culture uh, and then I can communicate to the people that our strategy and vision remains the same, that we are highly focused on on continuing to, to deliver out performance whilst managing risk. That's a good answer because a lot of people, and myself included in this camp, a lot of people look at stop arts and be thinking, well, I love this business and I love the way it's kind of constructed. It seems to tick all the boxes of a long-term capital allocation business that I want to be exposed to. But how do I know if they're doing the wrong thing? Like, How do I know if they're not allocating capital in the right ways? Um, and I think it comes back to your messaging and what you're saying is, is I'm saying these things or we're saying these things and if we don't do them, then you should ask us why. And I think the only thing that people need to keep in mind is that from quarter to quarter, from year to year, those things, this is a slow moving thing. So the decisions that you make today have an impact five or 10 years from now. 
And I think that's the the mindset people need to have when they approach this business. Speaking of, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was, if you were to blink and then wake up and we're doing this interview in five years from now, how do you think the business or even the portfolio composition will be different? Because I'm based on what you just said, I'm thinking that there's a chance that the structured yield portfolio will be a lot larger than it is now. And even the private equity part of the portfolio, as well as like the listed and strategic, but those two in particular seem to be areas of pretty strong growth, would be fair to say. Absolutely. And, and that was one of the things that we highlighted would be a consequence that flowed from the Milton merger. So as I said, it was a very strategic proposition for us. I mean, not only was it creative transaction from both a, a cash flow and value perspective, but it, the, the, the main reason that we did it was to give us the liquidity to be able to further diversify into new asset classes. We felt that that would de-risk the portfolio further, but also give us an opportunity because of the access to capital to enter into new asset classes that we that we felt very strongly about. And so I mean, one of the things that I really wanted to focus on, and I mentioned before, was building up the private equity uh, book again. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons why we didn't have much of a private equity book five to 10 years ago was we didn't have the capital to invest. And without the capital, you know, we just had these sort of small investments that weren't going to move the needle. But, um, but you know, private equity is a good asset class. It's uncorrelated. And, um, and certainly the way that we do it, we think we can add a lot of value to businesses because we've got that longer term horizon and, and that focus on, um, on growing good businesses. So I think, you know, we would definitely like to see some growth in the private equity portfolio maybe some new investments in there, but certainly the ones that are already in there, we'd like to grow around. So you know, good businesses like uh, Amp Control, which we now own 100% of, but that, that was a business that we bought about 45 to 50% of, I want to say 12 years ago, and, and we backed a founder, and then that founder got to an age where I think he was in his 80s. And, and, uh, and, and so we took him out because we could see that there was a, a fantastic opportunity for to build this business, which is a great electrical engineering uh, business and we could tr- transform it by being a business that goes from doing a lot of sort of mining related activities into um, utilizing that know-how and capability into remote power the g- transformation of the grid renewable energy all of those sorts of things and uh, there's just going to be a huge opportunity for that marketplace in, in in the next decade or so so i think we can build out a really big business then and in five years' time, maybe it's at a point where we can return it to the public markets. And and one of the reasons why we take our private equity portfolio with the ultimate aim that it gets to the public markets is and we think we can sort of incubate the growth of these businesses, uh, but then they get to a point where perhaps they become more mature and they're, they're already at scale and there's a really nice discipline that attaches to businesses in the public markets because now they have a whole bunch of shareholders who are ringing them up saying, well, I want my share price to be higher this year and you know, what have you done for me lately? And and so you kind of get on the treadmill. And so once once you're in the public markets, again, you're sort of back to square one and you've got to perform some more. So I think there's a nice discipline from a governance and, and a discipline perspective that uh, comes from being listed. So in five years' time, you know, I'd like to see an AMP control listed. Maybe uh, Ironbark is another private equity investment that we have in the wealth space. You know, we, we see a huge opportunity to grow that business as well. So, and then the other thing I think that, you know, we'd like to see in five years' time is... Um, is our, our own ability to manage third-party capital. So at the moment, we're just running our balance sheet. We just invest our own capital 
Um, we've never raised money since uh, we listed 120 years ago. Uh, we've just sort of recycled the balance sheet. But I think there's a great opportunity for us as we develop out these capabilities in, in, in various asset classes to attract money alongside us uh, for people who say, I just want to get exposure to your credit opportunities, or I just want to get exposure to your private equity or agriculture or whatever it might be. And you know, just doing what we're doing, we, we, we manage other people's money and, and that be, kind of becomes a, a side business. But you know, I think that that has other strategic benefits to the business because that will increase our scale and uh, you know, we'd be able to take more people on without really having to pay for them because they, they'd be paid for by the, the, the third party fund management fees. Uh, and then we get you know, this sort of network effect of talented individuals that can share ideas around and um, we just increase our uh, scale in the Australian market. Do you see that being primarily in structured yield and private equity? And the reason I bring that up is because we see it from the top with the massive industry funds and pension funds in Australia where they want this, probably it's probably fair to say more than anything else, they want that and they want that expertise, but and they, sometimes they do it internally and sometimes they outsource. Do you see that as kind of an evolution of the industry where, well, hang on a second, we've been doing this for decades, we can do this and we can sit like a sleeve alongside our core portfolios. And I imagine it's a much easier thing to do with the listed products because, uh, listed equities because, well, you can just be an active manager there, right? But do you see like the primary thing here being the unlisted market or private markets? Yeah, I think that's the real opportunity uh, and it's the, the bit that not only do people desire, it's also you know, the bit that I think is less competitive. You know, the uh, Australian equities is, is pretty uh, well covered, but and it's not just the, the big institutions like pension funds and people like that. I think that most investors in the Australian market are under allocated to private markets. So whether that's private equity or credit, you know, fixed income, any, anything like that, we, we tend to be very focused on allocating a lot of our wealth to to equities and predominantly the Australian market and then people might go and sort of invest through Platinum or Magellan to get some international exposure. But, you know, you are still taking a considerable amount of equity risk by doing that. And so there's a huge opportunity, I think, as people particularly get older and, and are in that kind of decumulation phase of their superannuation, that they will be wanting to get exposure to more diversity, less risky assets, because you know, it'll be all about wealth preservation and, and income generation in that phase of your, your life. Yeah, I see that. Um, like you said, I, I characterise it as probably the top down, but it's also the mid-market and everywhere in between. I guess MSFs are a massive opportunity for asset, I guess, consultants, investment managers, because they see what's happening up at the top and they want that for their portfolios. But at the moment, the solutions for them are quite limited as well as like family offices and even individual investors in their own name. So that's great. Um, just in the interest of time, Todd, I've, I'm hoping we can talk about what you see as one of the biggest risks that faces the business today. Now, from the outside, one of the things that I probably got that's kind of like ticking over in my head is size. You know, you're pretty big, $10 billion market cap of the business. You mentioned your portfolio. Is that a risk? Is that a constraint? Or what other risks are do you, not only do you think about, but do you want other people to think about? Well, I, I mean, as an asset allocator investment business, we, we don't have a lot of direct risks in the business. So, I mean, obviously we focus on workplace safety and compliance risk and all of those sorts of things. But 
you know, there, there's not very many business risks. It's, 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 uh, it's really just investment risks that we worry about. Now, of course, those investment risks are the business risks of the underlying investments. But, but you know, I think the diversification in the portfolio also is a massive mis- uh, risk mitigant because, you know, even if we see something happen, cyber attack or, uh, you know, significant change in the cycle relating to one investment, we've always managed to sort of weather that storm. And actually, we do better when the market is poorer, which is quite interesting. And we did the analysis uh, in our full year presentation uh, last September. Uh, we showed people that you know, what 20 years of history looks like in the Australian market. And about one third of the months, the market was a negative. And the average performance, I mean, people, we've had such a good run lately that maybe people have forgotten that you know, the market does go negative. And and in a third of those months, the average negative performance was 3.4% negative. And whenever the market did a negative month, we did about 2% better per month. So, uh, yeah, quite an astonishing outperformance when the market is, is, is in that negative territory. And, and so the, the poorer the market does, the better we do. So we feel that, you know, the, the, we do manage our investment risk quite well in terms of protecting capital. Yeah, there's always, Things that we we think about, but um, but generally speaking, you know, investing in uh, robust businesses that perform well in any part of the cycle, spit out cash flow, are low cost. You know, we just think that they're going to do better no matter what, and uh, and certainly having a portfolio approach uh, helps a great deal. Absolutely, it does. Um, one of the things, maybe I'll tuck this in here. One of the things that people like is front of mind for people is responsible investing and ESG risks and those types of things, which are creeping into conversations more and more. Um, obviously, with the exposure to thermal coal uh, and that part of the business, I'm curious how you think about that internally. Like as a business, what is your rebut, I guess, to the concerns around ESG risks? Well, our, our approach to ESG it really hasn't changed for a very long time. Uh, you know, because we have always been long-term investors who are picking the way that you know, industry themes are going to play out over the long term. You just just by doing that, you kind of become a sustainable investor. You're thinking about where the future of, of certain industries is is going. And in addition to that, you know, we have this culture in our firm that is um, is is rooted in the the generations of you know, Rob Milner's predecessors who um, have. We've always been big on philanthropy, looking after our people, ingraining ourselves in the communities in, in, in which we're involved. And, and that's permeated throughout our investments. So, you know, you'll see the same kind of DNA in Brickworks and, uh, and New Hope, as an example. And, and so that, that has always been there, you know, that we, we do the right thing. Uh, we do what we say we'll do. Our word is our bond. All of those things are really important to us. They're kind of, you know, people call them old school values, but they're, they're still current to us. And, um, and, and so I think, you know, we've, we've been pretty consistent about our, our approach. And then a, a few years ago, I got, got a little bit frustrated, I guess, with the whole ESG movement because I didn't think it was a particularly thoughtful movement. You know, it was really grounded in this idea that people should simply divest certain industries and, and, and thermal coal was one of them. And it, it, it wasn't clear to me how the world was going to become a better place simply because some asset allocators didn't own thermal coal anymore. I mean, the coal was still going to exist. It was still going to be dug out of the ground. It was still going to be supplied to 
our Asian neighbours and it was still going to supply electricity to the world. And Australia, for that matter. I mean, it's still a very significant amount of our energy um, mix in Australia comes from thermal coal. So this whole idea of just you know, mere divestment, I thought, was was a pretty um, blunt instrument uh, without a, you know, a lot of thoughtfulness attached to it. And our approach was, you know, what the effect of that is, is that as these sort of big players globally are divesting thermal coal, it's creating underpriced opportunities for us. And as a value investor, that kind of attracted us more to the sector. And and did I have a philosophical problem with that? Not at all. I actually think that the world wants people like Sol Pattinson to own these kind of, kinds of assets. We're going to operate them in a very responsible way and, and make sure that we are rehabilitating the land to the best possible quality, and New Hope does that. Uh, it's, it's a leader in its field. Uh, we look after our people, both their physical and mental health. We, we are deeply uh, rooted in the communities in which we operate, and we always have been. And so the last thing you would want is for people like us to divest these assets and they get put into the hands of more marginal owners, you know, the, the kind of offshore private families who are not particularly concerned with any of those things I just talked about. So our view is there's an energy transition going on, and in that period, coal is still a, a very large industry in Australia. In fact, it's one of our biggest exports, so we can't pretend it doesn't exist. And what you want is a, a, a much more adult conversation about who should be the proper owners of these assets and, and do it to the best possible standard. That's a fair response, in, in my opinion, because I, I know a lot of people that operate in and around so that rubber manufacturing and industries like that where it's a lot of offshore ownership and very little accountability. Okay, so just in the interest of time, you mentioned that over your shoulder there is a door to the chairman's room, to Rob's room. Over the, the, my shoulder here, you can see a door it goes to where my griddle is probably sleeping at the moment. So it's quite different. But I'm curious. My, my, my griddle's taught me a fair bit about the world. But uh, what has Rob taught you about investing maybe like even if it's one or two things that you can think of off the top of your head uh, that he's kind of instilled in you and it's changed you? I think the, the overriding thing I get from Rob is just his sort of patience and, and calmness uh, and that, that helps you to take a long-term view. He, you know, you don't, he keeps reinforcing the idea that you can never pick the exact right moment to make an investment, um, whether you're buying or selling. Um, and, and so long as you know, you're getting the direction right, and you're investing directionally in terms of long-term themes, you'll you'll eventually win. And you'll also get some things wrong. But again, if you're kind of getting the majority right, you'll you'll win. So that kind of patience and, and calmness about not getting too distressed about short-term events, I think, is uh, is really key. And, and I think you mentioned that you know, whenever you meet anyone from our our kind of group, it's uh, it's that calmness that 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 uh, you're stricken by. The other thing is, you know, don't overcomplicate things. I mean, you know, in Rob's life, he must have seen an extraordinary change in the the way the financial industry has become more and more complicated. And we see it, you know, when we sort of do our modelling and, 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 and construct a DCF and you can put a thousand different assumptions in there. But the reality is it usually comes down to about two or three major ones that if you just change those by a couple of percent, then it changes the whole the whole model significantly. So let's like kind of get rid of all the noise and just focus on those major ones and make sure we get those assumptions correct. And um, and you know, th- th- there's just so many people spending so much time thinking about you know the latest macro trend and event and reading a whole bunch of 
information and then parroting it as if it's their own thoughts and, and, and making investment decisions on stuff that they read in the newspaper that week. But if you just pick the right ideas and the right themes and the right direction and stand back from the, the noise, you know, we'll do quite well. And, and I think that feeds into the kind of the third thing that, that, that he has taught me, and that is don't worry about everybody else. It's not about following the herd, and uh, and in fact, the herd is often wrong. And I'm quite amazed at how frequently the market all moves in the same way at you know exactly the wrong time. And um, and so this idea about just play your own game, uh, do what you think is right, you know, is just phenomenal advice. And uh, and you know, so many people kind of talk about it, and you, know, you think about Charlie Munger's the psychology of human misjudgment and things like that. I mean, Rob. Rob has kind of the same idea without necessarily going into the description of why it is that people behave in those certain ways. He just says, you know, just don't, don't listen to it and, and, and run your own race. Love it. So calmness, simplicity, and be prepared to be contrarian, I guess, is, is what it comes into. Okay, two more quick questions on the end here. Is you've obviously taken that from him. What are you passing on to your kids about how do you explain what you do about how the world works. Is there anything unique you'd, you'd say in what, how you deliver those messages? Obviously, there'd be many of them day to day. Well, my kids are pretty young, so I guess the, um, the, the thing I'm telling them about their finances at the moment is don't spend all your money on lollies and chocolate. But, um, <laughs> but I think you know, if, I, if I was thinking about what I would tell them about learning from my own mistakes, and uh, it's be disciplined with the way that you manage your wealth and the way that you would be disciplined about anything else in your life that you want to be good at. Uh, you know, allocate the time to it. Set up the strategies that you want to put in place. Follow through on those strategies and, and keep on top of it. And if you can't do those things, pay somebody else to do it. You know, don't, don't be too proud to outsource it. Uh, you know, my mistake has been thinking that I know how to do it. But if I don't have the time to do it, um, then... You know, that's almost the same as not knowing how to do it in the first place. It is, yeah. So, um, you know, outsource to the experts and uh, and focus on on making as much money as you can to add to the pile. I like it. And final question is, what's one thing that you believe about business finance or investing that you think few other people would agree with you on? I think the common perception of finance and people who work in finance is is that it's an industry that doesn't really add much to society. You know, there's a bunch of sort of rent seekers trying to take money away from the investing public and and I, I mean I happen to think that you know this is a pretty honorable profession and uh, you know we've, we've got a team of, of very smart hard-working passionate people and and just as doctors and nurses are looking after people's health we we're looking after people's wealth which is as as important um, sometimes I've given you know, 20 years of my life to this company and I'm as passionate as, as I've ever been about achieving great outcomes for our shareholders. Our whole team actually is consumed by this idea that we we are the stewards of sixty thousand mums and dads who have entrusted us to look after their wealth. So that you know that responsibility is a real honour, and there's also a burden. Our desire to kind of continue the track record of our performance uh, and our desire to win is is the thing that drives us every day. I really like that. It's often the joke that finance is the highest calling of mankind, uh, said in jest, of course. So um, I'm glad you disagree with that because we're both here. But I really appreciate you taking some time to join me. I know you're quite a busy man, even though you have this very calm persona and the way you deliver things. So I do really appreciate you taking the time to speak to the RAS community and speak to the ASA community and anyone that watches this and share some of those lessons. So 
yeah, once again, I hope to see you in person soon at the ASA event, but thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for your time. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.